October 14th was the date where a beloved teacher by the name of Cynthia Trevilian was shot as a bullet ricocheted onto her by a gang shooting in Rogers Park as she walked with her husband by the L. This past Tuesday, a cherished police officer by the name of Paul Bauer, a veteran in the, in the force serving our city for 31 years, was shot six times. Also this week, an event that occurred, which was ranked amongst the highest shootings in U.S. history in a public school setting, occurred in South Florida at Douglas High School, leaving 17 dead and 15 injured, many with life-threatening injuries. So I was reminded about all these pieces of news, many hitting real close to home, just a few blocks away. Two thoughts came to mind. One, how dark our world can be. How much darkness is there when the Bible says that David, that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who to devour, we see manifestations of his darkness in our streets and in our nation. Now, it's also reminded of the deep love that if you clicked on the news, fathers and mothers had for their children. Many uh, weeping and sobbing uncontrollably at the fact that they would never see their children again. Is there hope? <laughs> With the darkness that we encounter and that we face not only on the outside but also within, is there hope? Does God care? Does the church care? This morning, I invite you to stay in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. And um, we're going to see through Paul the heart of God. We're going to see through the Apostle Paul a heart that is very expressive about the love that God has for his children, specifically in Thessalonica but I would say specifically to of you today. The Apostle Paul had stayed in Thessalonica for about a month, and he had been there for about these four or five weeks with Silas, and they had begun a good work in Thessalonica. Uh, this work had, had, had brought about a church, a church which began meeting at a house of a brother by the name of Jason, and we can read that story in Acts chapter 17. Well, it was soon after that work had begun that a strong opposition came about. An opposition so dark uh, that it pushed Paul and Silas and the rest of the missionaries that were in his team out 
of that region. And so they fled. And as we know, in Paul's absence, the church began to ask this question. Paul, where are you? Are you coming back? Does he even care about us? You see, this opposition that had arisen, that had pushed Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica, had also begun to defame his name and the message of the cross. And it was starting to create doubt within the young believers. So Paul writes this dearest of letters, uh, uh, really a, a letter of friendship with strong pastoral overtones. Making sure, exhorting that the believers, listen, even though I have not been able to return back to you, I want you to know a few things. And one, I want to encourage you in your faith as best as possible. Timothy had just returned back from visiting the Thessalonians and told Paul, listen, Paul, I know you're not able to get back there, but they're growing. God is deepening their faith. And so Paul here is writing and saying, I want you to know how much I love you. And as we're going to read in this word, there is absolutely no reservation in his expression of his love for them. But secondly, too, he He's writing this letter to correct the slandering of his opponents. Since it was affecting again the faith of these believers. We know that thirdly though, if we were to keep reading, and we will as we continue in these messages on Sunday. He also wanted to make sure that as he, as he expressed his heart to them, he was also instructing them into what walking like Christ looked like in the midst of that persecution. In the midst of that opposition, and not only walking like Christ, but expecting his return. That the opposition, that the persecution that they were facing was not going to have the last word. So with his heart in hand, knowing his congregation is asking, does Paul really care? Does he love us? we open up to these verses, these verses which show us a very affectionate type of Paul. And if you're taking notes this morning, this is really the big idea. Uh, we're going to be looking through Paul and, and his example on how the display of our love for one another can be used by God to authenticate the gospel we believe. Our love, our display of love for one another can be used by God to spur us into godliness and authenticate the gospel we believe. Let's look at verses 17 through 18. Libby read these, but I'm going to go ahead and read them again. It says, but as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. 
So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Paul deeply loved his flock. He even showed it by uh, being very explicit, again, in his affection. Uh, so much that it was without shame. Um, the, the philosophers of the time would tell us that uh, the words that he even chose to, to write these verses were perhaps maybe a little bit too passionate, um, almost to a sense of bringing a sense of awkwardness. Um, but he begins to share with them how extremely painful for him it was to have had been separated from them there in Thessalonica. And even though Timothy had received, uh, had given Paul this report, Paul saying, listen, this separation that I experienced from you was a tearing away. It was a tearing away from you. These words literally mean being left orphaned. The pain of being separated from the believers, even though it was just a month that he had been with them, felt to Paul as if his kids were being taken and torn from him. You know, Paul uses this type of language about three or four times within this very chapter, this familial type language. Listen, church, this is a type of love that Paul had for the believers. They were like family. He saw himself as a father to them, as a mother who cared for them. Even at times, almost like a child who depended on them as well. There was a sense of family that Christ had brought about together. And Paul, again, when I say he's very expressive and affectionate in his display of his emotions to them, he reveals that in these verses through three words. Three words and one repeated action. This word eagerly, when he says we endeavored the more eagerly, this word brings about the sense of a readiness of heart. That, 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 that I am so ready to want to be there with you. And then he, he goes on to say, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire. This word is interesting because all throughout the New Testament, we normally see this word in the Greek as being used in a negative way, descriptive of lust. But Paul here uses it, and it's only used once in a positive sense in the New Testament to display an overwhelming appetite or overpowering appetite within our soul or within his soul to be with the believers. In other words, he takes his word, he turns it upside down, and he says, I am so overpowered with desire to be with you. And then he says, now from a distance, <laughs> I know I'm far away, and that to me 
It's not sufficient. I want to see you face to face. Because we wanted, uses this word wanted, this, this moving of his own personal will that's, that's turning up within him, he says, to come to you. And so Paul here is saying, I want you to make sure you understand how much I want to see you. And he says, I, Paul, tried again and again. This is the repeated action. He tried it over and over and over and over and over again. This is some strong showing of affection. Strong showing of affection of someone which we sometimes wonder, you know, reading from reading Romans or some of the other letters, you know, we, we, we tend to think, well, Paul must be this, this, maybe not standoffish, but kind of, you know, dry or, or austere, um, hardly showing any emotions type of, of pastor. But that's not the Paul that we see here. See a Paul that's very expressive with his emotions. And one must ask why. Why was Paul being so expressive with his emotions? I mean, obviously he loved the flock. He loved the Thessalonians. But what caused that love to boil up so deep within him that he's being so expressive here? We must conclude that the answer is in the context of this letter. It's what Christ had done in him. It wasn't that he was, uh, was striving in his own energy to be loving. It was that he who once uh, sought after and persecuted and killed Christians while on the road to Damascus, that he was found. That he was, that he was chosen, that his eyes were opened. And that it wasn't because he was looking for Jesus. He was found by him and given a brand new heart. He was taught how to love. Jesus had taken a stiff, pharisaical Jewish heart. One who loved the law and not Christ. And turned it upside down to love the very flock of here Gentiles and Jews who had converted to follow Jesus as Lord. And we see it in this word, brothers. These were the very same kind of people that Paul had been persecuting years back. And now we see a completely different display of love and of affection, rather than to kill, to embrace. And I think we can take Paul as an example here. How can God be challenging us, encouraging us unto godliness through our affections? Now, we often think of emotions as bad. If we're led by emotions, that's bad. But if the gospel is, is the impetus, 
and is and is the message of Christ that overwhelms our emotions, then we see here that emotions can be a powerful tool to encourage the body. Paul, in expressing openly how he feels towards them, because he's been so impacted by what Christ has done for him and what he is doing in them, it's like Paul is functioning under this truth that Christ not only impacts how we think, but he impacts how we feel. Christ, if he's Lord of all, must also be Lord of our emotions. After all, isn't Christ also redeeming our emotions? So Paul's aware of this. And he's freely expressing to his flock how he feels based on the truth of the gospel. I think we can say that grace received will intensify all right human affections. That's the way Christ works. So we shouldn't have to hide from our emotions or fear our emotions. Christ also wants to redeem those too. But I think secondly, we can also learn something from here. Paul had only been with the church of Thessalonica for a month. Maybe, some commentators are saying, maybe five or six weeks. That seems like a very transient relationship. Well, the word transient is not foreign to us here at Edgewater. Is it? I mean, we, we get to know people who come and study and then depart again. Or who, who just walk into our neighborhoods and, and for one reason or another, they, they have to move out. In our church, we see that. But I think we could learn something about openly displaying, both in word and in deed, the beauty of the gospel to one another, regardless of how time anyone is with us. If we're honest with ourselves, I think the temptation is to hold back. Why? Because we don't want to hurt ourselves. We don't want to hurt others. But God has allotted and positioned not only the times and the places that people will live. Might we see folks who step into our midst as gifts of God? Regardless of how long they're with us, that God in his sovereignty has entrusted us to love them freely and not hold back, but to see them as a blessing to us and us to them. In other words, working a working friendship under God's timetable, not ours. So our genuine displays of love can be used by God to encourage one another unto godliness. When these give evidence of the gospel we believe. But you know, they can also serve to give us an awareness of Satan at work. And we see it in verse 18. He says here, Paul, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, 
but Satan hindered us. Now, let me explain. You know, Paul wanted the church in Thessalonica to not only know that he desired to be with them, but that he also wanted them to know that there was someone who also had desires for him not to be with them. And that was Satan. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that was keeping him from stepping back into Thessalonica. And it wasn't Jesus, as he had done in the past, that was keeping him from going back to this church. It was Satan. It was the devil himself. And here Paul is giving us a sharp contrast between his affectionate desires that have been caused by the gospel and that of Satan's. That of Satan's working against Paul's. Now we don't know exactly how Satan hindered uh, Paul and his team from going back to Thessalonica but we do know this, that the Jewish opposition, the way that the civil leaders put the stop on Paul coming back, that havoc, the stirring up of the riots and the mobs, there was a spiritual force behind all that. And I think this is what Paul is saying. Satan is behind any type of of gospel plan that God is doing. Church, there are a couple of things that we must take note here of our adversary and his work. And I don't want to spend too much time on this point, but I think it's important. Satan's work involves, plain and simply, he lives, he breathes, he acts and thinks with the mentality and the, and the leaning of disrupting the advancement of the great commission of Christ. And he starts with the pastors. As he's starting here with Paul. If, if the pastors are kept from preaching, from teaching, from praying for the flock and caring for the flock, And the flock is not able to, as is being discipled, carry about the Great Commission. And Paul here is penning these words to let the church know, listen, there is an agenda here that Satan has. And it involves you, yes, but it also involves me as your pastor. I think, too, though, that we can take note of, of Satan's deep desire. You know, Paul doesn't give a specific, some specific words to tell us exactly how deep Satan's desire is, but we do see it in contrast to Paul's desire to come over and over and over again back to Thessalonica. And the one that's hindering him from doing that, it's Satan, who is over and over and over and over keeping him from coming. Satan loves to disrupt 
the work of Christ. He loves to make the church feel and think, you're left alone. <laughs> you're not loved. You don't see the Spirit moving because God is not with you. You see, if Satan can cause us as a church to believe that, he begins to take a lot of ground. He begins to take a lot of grounds, not only in our gathering, but in our homes, in our testimonies, in the neighborhood. He begins to establish his agenda. Let me share with you a gospel snapshot, which I think will be relieving. <laughs> yes, Satan has and can powerfully influence us as Christians. I mean, we know that he can tempt our minds. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, we're going to be reading and talking about that next week. He can also hinder our ministry, as we see here. But did you know that Satan no longer has mastery over someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ? None whatsoever. He may try to poke you. He may try to oppress you with his demonic forces. But Satan has no longer mastery over us. Those days are over. Ephesians 2, chapter 1, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2 tell us about that. But 1 John 3, 8, John reminds us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, church, you must take heart. Take heart that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your adversary, the one who condemns you has already been defeated. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And Satan is being defeated. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And Satan will be once and for all extinguished as Jesus defeats him. Romans 16, 20. So yes, he does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking who to devour. That's his agenda. That's his nature. That's what he will do. But know that as Jesus' death, when Jesus went to the cross, Satan was defanged. And at Jesus' return, he's going to be destroyed. I think Martin Luther penned these words and his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. When he, when he writes these words, he says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom, it is sure. One little word shall fell him. So church, Paul's showing us here how our genuine gospel display of love can be used by God to urge us, to encourage us unto godliness when there are evidence of the gospel believed. And two, 
these displays of love can actually serve to give us a clear awareness of Satan at work. We saw that. But lastly, here in verses 19 through 20, God uses the display of our affections that are grounded and cemented in the gospel to fuel each other with hope on Jesus' return. Verses 19 through 20, we read, For what is our hope, Paul tells them, or joy, or a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, at first, when you read these, these words, you, 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 you may tend to pull back a little bit. I know I did. And I began scratching my head. I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Paul, that you're, 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 that's good that you're affectionate and that you're showing the love that God has poured into you through Christ to them. But Paul, you're, you may be going a little bit over the, the edge here. I mean, you're, 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 you're calling the believers your, your joy, your hope, your glory. Paul, did the Thessalonians become your idols? <laughs> like, what's going on? But you know, um, these nouns that Paul uses, yeah, hope, we don't see it used anywhere else in Scripture to describe the believers. I mean, I mean we use these nouns to describe Jesus. But I want you to see what Paul is saying here. Uh, I was looking at the Olympics just this past week. And um, I don't know if any of you got to watching, um, what's his name, Sean White, uh, display some real mad skills on the men's snowboarding half pipe. <laughs> uh, Sean White, you know, if you saw his last run, was, was stupendous. I mean, just the athleticism. Um, but it's interesting the way he, <laughs> when he came down and he got his score, just the type of emotion he displayed. He, he began embracing his mother. He began embracing his father. He was sobbing up a storm. And his words were, oh my God, I'm so happy. All that work, I am so happy and he couldn't stop crying sobbing winning the gold for him was the ultimate reward church for paul you know what his ultimate reward was it was the thessalonians being at the foot of christ and on that day when Jesus returns, them receiving their, 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 their white gowns, them being able to look at Jesus in the face and, and Jesus tell them, well done, good and faithful servants, that even though in the midst of persecution, you persevered, that even though you, 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 you felt like going back to your old ways, to your old Hellenistic idol-worshiping ways, you persevered. And you held on to me. And because you held on to me, 
Others saw Christ through you. And they too came to me. As Paul is writing this letter, he's envisioning that and he's telling them, that's why you, you're my hope. You're my crown. You're what I'm so proud of because it is serving to glorify Christ, not me. Paul was thrilled and thrilled at the work of Christ in them. And he saw them as their hope, as this hope, as this crown of boasting, as his glory, not a gold medal, but the people, the church, his glory, and his joy before Jesus. This future reality is what infused hope and joy for Paul and allowed him to exuberantly share his love and affections with the church because he knew where they were headed. He knew that the work that Christ had begun, he will finish it. And he was shepherding it. He was encouraging it. This reality has an effect, you know, on, on how we encourage one another. How we share Christ with one another. And we tell others of the Christ that we, one another, have been saved to. You know, knowing that as believers we will see Christ again and at his feet receive our rewards. How can we encourage one another to press on towards holiness with that end in mind? You know, this, this may mean having tough conversations. Not because we want to pinpoint sin on our brothers and sisters, but because we see the end in mind. And we know it's a joyful ending. And so we're, we're going to push. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to press on towards holiness. Also, we can purposefully seek to give words of affirmation to our brothers and sisters. You know, how have we seen them grow? Share that. Tell them that. You know, at our home, um, Belkis and I like to do an exercise where we sit with our kids. Um, and now we only have two because our third one has gone off to college. But when she returns, we're going to continue to do it with her too. But we like to encourage one another. Do this once every two, three months. Letting them know how Christ is maturing us. Why? Because we need to hear that. Uh, and... And after every time we gather together and we do that, the change of the mood at the, the, the mood at the table changes. How does God want to use you to encourage your brother and sister? To do it freely. I think what we can also get from here is, you know, Paul, 
Paul saw the end in mind. Paul saw these believers coming to the feet of Christ in Christ's return and worshiping Christ. I mean, giving glory to Jesus for the way that he had changed them. You know, Paul's ministry wasn't just about sharing his knowledge of the gospel and his emotions of the gospel with the flock. It was about sharing that with anyone who didn't know Christ. You know, one of the things that propelled Paul to share the gospel with someone who didn't know Christ is that end in mind. And brother and sister, this morning, I want to encourage you to do likewise. Sometimes we see things as they are now. And we don't let the future hope of Christ's return dictate how we evangelize. We tend to look at the way someone looks or the way someone thinks or the way someone appears, the way they come across, and we sometimes just mark them off and say, you know what, that's going to be too hard for Christ. Well, that wasn't the case for Paul. Paul was an ex-murderer, and the Lord saved him. In other words, there is no background that you can have that Christ cannot save you from. In church, sometimes we just need to look at what Christ has done and then look at what he's going to fulfill in the future. That the power of the cross was enough to save whoever. He saved you and I. And that the work that he's begun, again, he's going to finish it. And if we can just envision those that Christ has already chosen as his, who's drawing them back home, worshiping the lamb, worshiping the king, and bringing praises and honor beside us for eternity as his church. If we can just envision that, the Lord can use us today to be vehicles of the gospel who speak it and who show it with our emotions a Christ that is alive a Christ that has arisen. Some time ago, I had the opportunity to run the, um, the Miami Marathon, the ING Marathon. I did it some time ago. <laughs> and while it was the hardest thing that I had done, one of the hardest things I had done, I'll never forget to write about the quarter mile a brother by the name of Babatunde, Oshiwonwo. Uh, if, if, I, I know some of you know Babatunde. He's a, he's a real big, stocky guy. Um, played football in the NFL. So I'm running this last quarter mile. Um, I'm here thinking to myself, I don't know if I can finish this marathon. I mean, that, that's got to be the hardest part of a marathon. Because you're thinking, people are cheering you on, and they're telling you, hey, listen, no, you got a mile left or you got half a mile left. And you're thinking, what is a mile? What is half a mile? I just want to stop. I just want to pick up some goo, some Gatorade, <laughs> and maybe some McDonald's on the way out. <laughs> and sometimes we just feel like, ah, it's 
much darkness around us, so much darkness within us. Lord, am I really your joy and your crown and your and your and your love, your expression of love? And I'll never forget Babatunde jumping over <laughs> some uh, some boundaries. And him coming towards me. At first, I thought he was going to knock me out. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't have the size to stop this guy. <laughs> but then his words were life-giving to me. And I remember him saying, the finish line is just right around the corner. I know you don't see it, but it's right around the corner. We're cheering you on. I am running with you. And we ran together. Brother and sister, you're almost there. The finish line is right around the corner. And you're not running alone. We're with you. And this morning, if you've been hearing this message and you're thinking, I need to know that Jesus that turns the heart around, that puts this love within you, that takes an ex-con murderer and, and, and gives him life and, and makes him a leader in a church. I need that Jesus. This morning that offer is there. We come to Jesus no matter where we're at. As foreigners of the cross or sons and daughters of our master, we come by faith. And we come running to the arms of the Father who's already running to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for taking the initiative. Thank you for going to the cross when, when we ourselves could not. Thank you for making things right on our behalf in front of God when we desired not even to. Lord, this morning, thank you for the reminder of your word, of your promises that you will come again and Lord, that even the work that you have started in bringing salvation to us, you're spilling that out and bringing in your sons and daughters home. Jesus, we come to you, and it's by faith that we do. In the name of Christ.